You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 260, Dr. Michelle Bankson and Overcoming Anxiety. In Christ, all things are possible. is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. And I'm so excited that you downloaded this episode and that you're listening. If you like it, and I know you will, uh, would you just share it with a friend, shoot over the link and text it to somebody or mention it in the conversation. And if you really like it and you want to invest and help keep the show going, feel free to go to halfwaytherepodcast.com, hit that Patreon button. And you can support the show. We've got different levels and you'll find all that. You know how to use the internet. Would love to have your support in that way. Okay, friends, I know we're going to have a great conversation today. Uh, honestly, I was thinking about it before this show. I think it's been maybe this is this conversation is maybe two years overdue, but I'm excited that we're doing it today. Our guest, she's a board certified clinical neuropsychologist. Hopefully I said that right. Author and fellow podcaster, Dr. Michelle Bankson. Michelle, welcome to Halfway There. Derek, I'm so glad to finally be here. Like I said, it's been a little while. Like we've known each other in, around podcasting circles, but I'm glad to finally have you here. So tell us a little bit about okay, you and where God has you right now. You know, as you mentioned, I'm a board certified clinical neuropsychologist, and most people don't even know what that is, but it's kind of a cross between a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and a neurologist. And what we do is evaluate patients for areas of brain inefficiency diagnose, and then help treat so that we can get them to be the best version of themselves that God created them to be. But really, my favorite label is mom and wife. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so tell me, so that's, that's really fascinating. I want to go, I mentioned you're an author and you, you've got a recent book out. Is that right? Yes, I do. Yeah, the first book was Hope Prevails, Insights from a Doctor's Personal Journey Through Depression. And then my readers asked me to go even deeper. So I wrote the Hope Prevails Bible Study. But most recently, the book that came out right before the pandemic hit is called Breaking Anxiety's Grip, How to Reclaim the Peace God Promises. And who but God would know <laughs> that book on worry, fear, and anxiety needed to come out in the fall of 2019, right before a global pandemic. Right. Only God. And so as you were saying, you and I have known each other for a while, but I believe that God's timing is perfect. And so I think today is going to be a great discussion. Amen. I do too. I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in coincidence. I believe in providence. So hundred percent. Well, We'll let that uh, be what it is. So cool. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Fascinating that, that the timing there, um, I'm sure it was a great help to many people and will be to some of our listeners here as well. So let's go back in your story and I want to hear all about it and learn more about you. Um, so where are you from? I'm originally from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Oh, I love Kalamazoo. It's not just a song. There really is a place <laughs> called Kalamazoo. <laughs> And then I moved to Florida um, in the middle of my college years, met and married my husband, and we hopscotched around the country for about four years for me to get my training before we settled in Texas for 20 years. And now we reside in Greenville, South Carolina. Nice. Okay. Tell me what it was like, your faith experience like as a, as a kid. I grew up in the church. So I was in the church from the time I was born. And every time the doors were open, mm. 
we were there. We were usually the ones opening the doors and closing the doors and setting up chairs. And we helped do church plants. And I came to know the Lord as my savior when I was seven. But if I'm being very honest, Eric, I didn't come to know him as Lord of my life until I was in my 40s. In fact, I was just telling someone the story earlier today that as a neuropsychologist, I loved helping patients. But when my husband was diagnosed with cancer for the second time, I took it upon myself to become the provider for our family when he was unable to work. And I ended up working about a hundred hours a week. Oh my I goodness. would see patients during the day. I'd stay at the office in the evening and write reports. And I'd go home somewhere between midnight and one o'clock in the morning. And I'd take a quick shower and then take a quick nap. And I'd be back at the office by three or four in the morning. And I kind of wore that as a badge of honor. Friends would drive past the office at all hours and say, you are always there. But one day when I was seeing patients, I doubled over in pain. And the long story, very short, is I ended up in the hospital, had two surgeries, was on medically induced bed rest for five months. I dwindled from 113 pounds down to a skeletal 74. Oh, wow. And I was kept alive on IV hydration and nutrition. And the longer I was on bed rest, I was on bed rest for five months. And the longer I was there convalescing in my home, the more depressed I got. And I remember thinking, if this is all my life is going to be, I'm not sure that I want to continue living. And I really cried out to God. And I've never heard the audible voice of God, but it was almost like, I don't know how to describe it other than like it was a whisper to my soul. And it was like God was saying, I never asked you to work that hard. Mm. And if you don't ever work another day in your life, I'm not going to love you any less. But if you go back to working 100 hours a week, I'm not going to love you anymore because you think I love you because what you do for me. But in actuality, I love you because you're mine. And Eric, that changed everything for me because I had taken on myself the role of provider and, and God's not going to violate our free will. So he was like, okay, see how that works for you. Yeah. And when I became so ill that I couldn't be the provider anymore and had to depend on God, that was when he really became Lord of my life. And when he helped me recover and I went back to the private practice, I went and I worked not out of striving to become worthy of his love, but out of an offering and a sacrifice to him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's really fascinating. I want to know more about how you got to that place in the first place. Like what was the, um, like, where did you learn that you were valuable to God if you did these things? I think that that probably went back to early childhood. I was born a preemie back in the days when a child two pounds wouldn't mm. normally survive. Yeah. So I wasn't expected to survive. And then when I was three, I became deathly ill fever of 107 doctors were concerned about getting the fever down so that first of all, I didn't die. But if I lived, I wouldn't be mentally incapacitated the rest of my life. So my parents did everything the doctor said. We did alcohol rubs and they did ice baths and nothing would work to take down that fever. So the doctor said to give me aspirin. They didn't know I was deathly allergic to aspirin. Oh no! And so I went into anaphylactic shock. 
And they were able to pump a lot of that out of my system, but it left me with physical deformity. And so when I was in school, I was picked on because I wore a leg brace. I was shorter than all my peers. I wasn't physically agile. I was not an athlete. And so I learned to compensate by devoting myself to my studies. And I would get accolades for being the top in my class and always being the one to get the straight A's and to lead the group projects. And that set up a really unhealthy dynamic that taught me I had to be the best and I had to work harder than anybody else to become acceptable, not realizing that I was already acceptable to God as his child. Yeah. Fascinating. Because was, was, you know, I think it's really interesting about that. I mean, you had, those are ex, ex, oh, I don't want to say extreme. That's not the word I mean, but like extenuating circumstances, those are circumstances not everybody goes through. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and yet so many of us still get the same message. Like even, even without those things, like, Oh, I need to do, to do the thing. And so you were like, okay, I've got to get, I've got to do these things in order to be more, more acceptable. Okay. How, so how did that manifest itself? And what was that like? So it was, it was a lot of study. Was that why you became a doctor? Was that like, what, how'd that lead? No, I always wanted to help other people. And mm. so that led into being a doctor, but it manifested itself in terms of self-punishment. Oh. If I didn't get an A plus, it was not good enough. Oh, you and had to I be perfect. The most extreme form of self-punishment because I have one leg that's deformed and I have one foot that's extremely deformed. As a child, as strange as this sounds, I used to punish that deformed leg. Here's what it looked like. Every time I would get up and I would take a step, the normal leg had to take the first step. And I punished the abnormal leg because it wasn't good enough. I mean, that's just how twisted our thinking gets. But I've since come to realize there were a whole lot of lies that the enemy was feeding me that I didn't believe or I didn't recognize at the time were lies. And so now as a neuropsychologist, I spend the majority of my time talking to people about their thought life mm. and what are they believing? You know, our emotions as a neuropsychologist, I treat patients who are depressed, who are anxious, who have bipolar, who have dementia, you name it. And our emotions are God-given, but so often we give them more weight than they deserve. Yeah. Our emotions and our feelings are really the outward manifestation of the thoughts we believe. So if we will follow the emotion back to the thought that produced it, that's where we can assess is that truth or is that a lie? And that's truly what God means when he says to take every thought captive. And that's how I spend the majority of my professional life now is teaching people, how do you take thoughts captive? Yeah. Why do we need to do that? And what impact will it have? And I'm here to tell you when you do that, for me, it rid me of the depression and anxiety that plagued me for decades. Yeah. Okay. I want to hear more about your story, but I, we have to dive into this a little bit because I find it really fascinating. This idea. So th this whole thing of like taking your thoughts and like just creating that little bit of distance between your yourself and your thoughts. Mm -hmm. you, for me, realizing you are not your thoughts was a huge deal, right? Because you, I think I grew up 
very evangelical and you are your, what you think. And so if you're thinking about whatever, then that's what you are. And really, like you said, your emotions, your thoughts, they're indicators of things that are actually happening and what you're believing. And so if you can learn to separate yourself just a little bit, how do you do that? Like, what are there practices that you have that help people to, to get a little more distance? Cause this is valuable even in relationships. Like I know my wife and I, when we, when we're able to just take a little bit more space back and, and think about what's actually happening here in an interaction, we have a better relationship, right? And it's even a better relationship with ourselves. I think part of it is being willing to not react in the moment, but let's say to step back. So when we feel an emotion, I mean, our emotions are really strong indicators of what's going on in and around us. For me, one of my go-to emotions is anger. And that will come out when I feel rejected, when I feel abandoned, when I'm afraid, because anger is more protective than admitting I'm afraid. So for example, in, a, in my relationship with my husband, when I get angry, if, if I will pause before reacting and ask myself, what am I believing mm. about this situation? And then follow that up with, and what does God say about that? But you see, Eric, we have to first know, what does God say? Right. And even though I was raised in the church, there were too many years where I, I didn't know what God said about me. In fact, I remember a very famous female Christian speaker, and she was so on fire for the Lord. She had such joy, and I thought, I want that. And scripture would roll off her tongue. And I remember thinking, and this was a lie from the enemy, but I remember thinking that takes too much work. And so until I knew what God said, I couldn't counter the lies of the enemy. But it was during that time of illness, when I'd been working those crazy hours, that I had nothing but time. I had time to listen to sermons online, listen to praise and worship music, read books. So I had nothing but time. And it was during that time that I started learning what God said. It started with a, a single scripture verse that a friend gave me that encouraged my heart. And I wrote it on a post-it note and I stuck that post-it note to my IV pole. And every time I saw that post-it note, I repeated it out loud three times. And the reason I did that is because scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then I would write down another scripture and another and another. And by the time it was all said and done, I had over a hundred post-it notes everywhere on my Ivy pool, my nightstand, my bathroom mirror, my dashboard of my car. But what it did was it taught me what God said so that now when the emotions come up, those verses, God's own word, went from my head to my heart. And so now I can check it against what God says. So then I know, am I being led astray by lies or am I really believing truth? And that's really, it makes such a difference in how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about others, how we interact. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't want to go through those five months again. Yeah but I'm grateful for the lessons I learned through them. Yeah, that's really interesting. So 
what would you say? It sounds like that those five months, maybe that was a dark night of the soul for you. You had to right. kind of reckon with who you were and allow yourself to become who God says you are. How, how would you say that? I mean, would you say that that's what happened? And would you say that that's, how would you say that changed you? Absolutely. I would say that's what happened. And that's how I have referred to it in the past. And the funny thing about that is about two weeks before I got sick, I started working on the proposal for my book, for my first book about depression. And Eric, had I not gone through those five months, that book would have been a much different version than it is now. It would have been very clinical. It would have been me as the doctor speaking instead of someone who now understands my patients, right? Because now I've gone through it. And so it's not just head knowledge. It's not just book knowledge. I get it on an experiential level. That changed everything. Those five months, they changed how I parent. They changed how I'm a wife. They changed how I helped my patients because I realized I can't use worldly wisdom in the absence of godly wisdom. It changed everything going forward. It's so interesting because my kids have learned so much just by watching me. And I remember one time I was working on a speaking presentation and I'm not real tech savvy. So someone else was helping me with the PowerPoints. And she said, Michelle, I just need to know what it is you're trying to communicate. And I remember sitting at the dining room table and my son was sitting next to me working on homework. And I said, I don't know. I'm just so stupid. Mm. And a nanosecond later, my son, who at the time was about 10, turned to me and said, only if you believe that, mom. And he had just in that second spoken truth to me. And I said, you're right. I'm not stupid. I just need to slow down for a second to see what it is that I want to communicate. But had he not said that, that thought, who's from the enemy of my soul, would have won out in that argument. Yeah. everything which is really fascinating because i don't obviously you're not alone in this right we so many of us do that i've taken to even um to correcting people like that you know like when i'm talking when when, when somebody says something negative about themselves like whoa stop right there like we don't do that here that's not a thing because that's not okay um because how much of the world would be different if we actually all learned how to talk to ourselves well oh my goodness (laughs) I don't think we can even imagine just how much of a better place it would be. I just posted on social media a couple of days. Be careful what you say to yourself because you're listening. And that resonated with so many people because we don't stop to take time to formulate our thoughts. They just pop out like that comment. I'm so stupid, but we're listening. And the more we hear it, the more we believe it. Right. But if we were speaking out God's truth, he says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, I have the mind of Christ. Well, Christ is not stupid. So if I have the mind of Christ, I can't be stupid. Right. Okay. So is there, I wouldn't ask this question of most of my guests, but I think you can answer it. What is there like a, like a, there's probably a neurological aspect to that and a psychological aspect to that. Like what is, tell me what that is. Give me, educate me a little bit. Think of your brain as a running trail. You've got all sorts of intersecting running trails. And if you've ever gone on a hike and nobody has hiked there before you, it can be real difficult to traverse the terrain and and get past the bushes and the thorns and the weeds that come up. 
But the more you walk on that trail, the more it becomes cleared away and it becomes almost like a rut, becomes so um, natural and normal that you don't even think about it anymore. Those thoughts that we have are like that running trail. And the more you think those, the more they become embedded and they become habitual. And in choosing to stop and say, wait a minute, where's that thought coming from? Where's that emotion coming from? And what does God say? That gives us a chance neurologically then to form a different path, to form a different trail. And the longer we stay on that, the more that will become our habit. And psychologically, then it works on our self-esteem. The longer we hear comments from teachers, coaches, parents, you're not good enough, you'll never make the A string, you know, those kinds of things, the more we believe them. But the more we go back to God's word to say, what does he say about me? He's the one who created me. And if we will focus on that, the more that that will build our self-esteem. I don't actually like the term self-esteem because I really believe it's God-esteem. But if we spend our time focusing on what other people say, then we do believe it's all up to me or it's not going to be. When in actuality, if we will follow God's plan, he's the one who esteems us. Right. See, okay, that's fascinating. I think it's so true. I grew up in this sort of what I call worm theology, right? Like I'm so bad. I'm so terrible. I'm sinful. I'm, I'm, I'm the worst. I'm the chief of sinners that all that business. And, uh, even that so so much so that even after you know pledging my life to Christ like that's still the thing and i have friends who will say this all the time on, on my social media um and i'm like wait 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 no no that's not who god says that we are like if you go there's so there's so much of the new testament read paul read peter read john there's so much of the ways that they teach us to speak about our identity right paul is always i think it might be too much to say in every letter, but I I would suspect I bet I could find it if I went and sat down and looked at it. There's something about identity in everything, you know. I I was uh, one of the first books I studied uh, in in college was First Peter, and there's that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen people. There's a reason Peter starts with that to to identify who his audiences. And these weren't Jews. These were like just scattered, you know, people around, um, around that, the area that he was writing to. So identity really is, is kind of a powerful thing. So your identity changed from I'm the achiever. If I can work a hundred hours a week, I don't know how you were doing that. Like that was just, I'm not that's that way. I became sick. Yeah. Honestly. That's, that's just, I've never, I, I can't do that. But so, but that's, but there's a drivenness to that, right? Do you, do you have less, maybe not drive, but do you have less like, what, how did that change your, your drive in that way? I've always been driven. I yeah. think I got that from my father. But in large part, if we were to really dissect it, drivenness often comes back to a spirit of fear. Mm. I needed to do more and more and more, to be seen as worthy, to be seen as acceptable, to be seen as a good doctor. And once I realized that in God's economy, he'd already made me fearfully and wonderfully made. He already calls me the apple of his eye. He already sings over me with songs. So nothing's going to change that. So I still have 
motivation to do what God has called me to do. But sometimes God has to remind me, wait a minute, you're expecting more out of yourself today than I expect out of you. Even my son took time to rest. Sometimes the best thing you can do for me is to rest because God doesn't want weary soldiers. He wants rested warriors. Yeah. I was saying to somebody the, the other day, like we, our need for rest, it's almost like God built us that way. Right? Like it's almost, it's almost like, like, oh, like maybe that's one of the key things. Oh yeah. 10 commandments. Okay. Sabbath. There we go. <laughs> like yeah. maybe we need that. Uh, Cause there's something that happens and, and this is both physical and spiritual as well. Again, right. Like that, that happens when we, when we do take that time to rest. And Jesus modeled it for us. Right. He went away to get away from the people, to spend time with his father, to rest. So sometimes I think we forget that he was not only fully God, but he was also fully human. And he modeled for us what God wants for us. Right. And was, see, which I love, if Jesus was fully human, then being human is good, right? Then it's okay to be human, even in all the our perceived weakness. Those things are there to, to drive us back to the Lord. Okay. So this whole time sort of, it sounds like it just really changed your, your life and your trajectory. Uh, so where did you go from there? And like, how did, how did you begin to, um, you know, build your platform and kind of start, start to serve others? It started really slow. It started writing blog posts. And when I started those, you know, even back then the conventional wisdom is you need to be consistent so that your audience knows what to expect. And I remember those first couple of years, I thought, there's no way I can write a blog post a week because I was working full time and seeing patients and being a mom to littles. And But now, about 12 years later, I don't know, we've got probably a thousand blog posts on my blog. What it did, though, was it narrowed my focus. The Lord showed me that, look, I've trained you to be a doctor. I've trained you to understand how the mind works. Now go use it to educate other people so that they can live in the fullness of their identity in me. So now I coach, now I write books, and now I speak, typically on mental health issues. But really, the underlying message is that we need to know who we are in Christ and where our identity comes from. Yeah, I love that. I I just think that is the absolute most most perfect thing. What was the response to your to your uh first book then after after you finally got that got that written and did anything surprise you? It was amazing. It was amazing because had I written the book or the proposal the way I had started it, it would have been a dry clinical book. Nobody would have liked it and as a depressed reader, they wouldn't have made it through the book. I know it. <laughs> right. But the feedback that I get now, if you go look at my reviews on Amazon, the typical responses are, she understands me because she's been there. And I think the most interesting thing was, you know, Eric, I, for so many years, I thought it was on me. If it was going to be, it had to be up to me. And I mm. thought I was responsible for the harvest. And what God showed me is that I'm responsible to be obedient to him 
and he's responsible for the harvest. My favorite email that I got after that first book was from a woman named Hope in South Africa. And she wrote to me and she said she'd been horribly depressed and suicidal for years. She had attempted suicide something like 14 times. Wow. And went to her pastor and said, I need help. I need resources. I don't want to live like this. And her pastor said, I got nothing for you. I don't know who to send you to. I don't know what resources to give you. And she had a little bit of money. She was not employed, but someone had given her a little bit of money for her birthday. So she went to a bookstore that was going out of business. And my book was called Hope Prevails. And it was on sale because the store was going out of business. She picked up my book because her name was Hope. And she read it cover to cover and then went back to her pastor and held it up and said, this is my source of hope. This was the answer. And she sent me a letter saying, thank you for using your own pain to help others get through their pain. Eric, there's no way I could have gotten my book in South Africa into the hands of this young woman named Hope. But God could. Yeah. Good. And he did. And so now I try to be obedient to what God asked me to do, but I try to leave the results up to him. Yeah. Okay. So you said earlier that you, that you, the kind of lordship thing, you know, was a, was a big deal for you. Was that just the matter of the surrendering because to the, to the rest and the need, or was there more, was there more to that? It was really a matter of recognizing that, you know, Jesus says in Matthew that, His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And what the Lord showed me is that I was taking on a burden that was never meant for me to carry. And so now I approach my days. I have a tentative idea of what I'd like to get done during the course of the day because of certain deadlines and whatnot. But what I try to do in the morning is say, Lord, this is your day. You've given me another day to live. What is it you want me to do today? And when I will proceed doing what he impresses upon me to do, then I have peace at the end of the day. I might not get everything done that's on my to-do list. But in the long run, Mm. I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to do what he wants me to do. I'm supposed to be open to encounters that he might give me in, in line in the grocery store or at the tire repair place. And that sows seeds into his kingdom. And that's what he's going to bless. Yeah. So you sound like you're a lot more open to that. Like you're, you're asking the question. See, I think that's really fascinating. It's I honestly, I think it's one of the messages that we get from the book of Kings. And I don't know why this, this is the place where it stands out to me. All the good Kings did this right when they were like, Oh, they would inquire of the Lord. It would say, right. So you go, go ask the Lord is, should we go up to battle or not? And then God would say yes or no or whatever. And, and then they, the ones who were smart listened to God and the ones who were bad kings didn't and they died in battle or whatever. Uh, but that's that's not like just for those kings, right? <laughs> right? No. Like that's a thing we, sh- we can be doing. You know, it says in Psalms, teach me your ways, O Lord, because you are my God. So that's a daily choice to have that attitude. You teach me what you want me to do today. Yeah. And that's it. That's a burden I can take because it's light. It's not heavy. And what I realized is that all those years when I was working like a crazy woman, I was trying to do it in my own strength. But when I do what God wants me to do, 
then he will give me his strength. What a difference. Yeah. yeah, it's it's definitely a a big deal. Okay. Well, so then is there anything else that God that the Lord has kind of as you've moved from that and you've started to have this, you know, platform? You said you have a thousand blog posts. That's pretty amazing. Are did you write all those? Well, most of them. I've had a few guest contributors along the way, but the majority are mine. That's pretty incredible. So so you kind of kind of shifted this whole kind of way that you're that you're helping people and seeing these worldwide wide results. What um how how is that how has that shaped how you see God and your own relationship with him? It really reminds me that God tells us in his word not to despise small beginnings. Oh, yeah. Anybody who wants to be a speaker or a writer or a podcaster, you know, there's a lot of pressure for numbers. And I get that, you know, as a published author, I know what my publishing house wants. But God doesn't call me to have a bajillion numbers or bajillion followers. Jesus had 12 disciples. Now, he had many more that followed after them. But what it shows me is that if I will give him my small offering, he will magnify it and multiply it for his kingdom. When I tried to do it in my own strength, I ended up exhausted, sick, and in the hospital, right? But when I will give him my small offering, he's the one who's going to multiply it. And that takes the weight and the burden of the results off my shoulders and leaves me at peace. Otherwise, I would get filled with worry, fear, and anxiety that I'm not doing enough or I'm not hitting the right standards or the world's measurement. He didn't ask me to do that. He said, my peace I give you. Well, the thing about him giving us a gift is that it's up to us whether or not we're going to receive it. And I would much rather live in his peace than live in the worry, fear, and anxiety that I did for years thinking it was all up to me. Yeah. Yeah. That struggle with perfectionism, right? Trying to be, trying to be the perfect Christian, the perfect mom, the person, perfect person that's debilitating and that, and that will, it will hurt you. It will hurt you eventually. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I think that's super, super fascinating. Um, and so do you find, I guess one, one thing I want to talk about is one thing that it just bothers me we talk about emotions and we talk about anxiety. I find that sort of drive for perfectionism in the church, that drive for like, you need to be put on these appearances. You need to do this. You know, I thought it was so ironic that all these churches were like against wearing a mask during COVID, but they've been wearing masks to church for years. They just couldn't see them. Right. And so there's this, there's this whole thing that actually doesn't create spiritual maturity. It doesn't actually lead people to to maturity. What? How do you how do you address that? And how do you how do you help people kind of see that that problem? You know, I think we have to go back to the mandate from God to go out to the nations and spread the good news. And what I can tell you is that those years that I tried to be the perfect doctor, and that I tried to be there for every patient at all times, it was exhausting. And I did help patients. But what I know now is that when I'm willing to take that mask off and post on social media and say, hey, I'm having a rough day, 
I'm still trusting in the Lord, but it's hard. So many more people can relate to me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help them to see this perfect face on social media. If anything, it makes them feel worse about themselves and their own circumstances. So what I've come to realize is that if we are willing to be real and authentic, we will reach many more people and encourage more people than we would if we acted like we always have it all together, which is exhausting. Right, right. And then we wonder why people don't want to come to church because it's like so hard. And it just takes so much emotional energy to to kind of try to put all that on. And uh, yeah, absolutely. The other thing, I love what you said about you just being vulnerable and authentic. Authenticity is the currency of our age. Like it just is the case. So that's so, so important and powerful. And we, like, people see through stuff that they just didn't have the ability to now because we see so much, right? And so we, with the internet, it's just... You have to show up authentic or else you're not going to be believed at all. But on the flip side of that, I think so many people spend a lot of time posing that picture, using the filter that makes everything look polished and perfect. When in reality, I don't want to relate to somebody who's perfect because I'm so far from it. I would rather relate to you in your weakness and brokenness because I'm like, yeah, I get it. And I can come alongside and go, well, I'm having a good day. Let me link arms with you and lift you up today. And on another day when I'm having a difficult day, somebody else will do the same thing for me. And that's so much more fruitful for the kingdom. Right. And of course we have, somebody mentioned in an interview I did earlier today, that verse in, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians about God uses the weak to shame the strong, right? Like there's, that's kind of his way. Yeah. That's what he does. You have a podcast as well? I do. It's called Your Hope-Filled Perspective with Dr. Michelle Bankson. And really what we do is talk about real-life struggles and issues, but from a biblically-based, hope-filled perspective. What I've found in my journey is that God has brought me to this place so that I can help those that are just a couple rungs lower on the ladder of experience than I am. But then he brings people along my path who are just a couple of rungs further along on the ladder to help me. And so the goal of the podcast is to say, you know what? None of us have it all perfect, but there's a place where we found hope and we want to share it with our listeners so that they can hold on to hope. I love that. I think that's just so undervalued in our, in our society and particularly in the evangelical world that you don't have to be that far along about ahead of somebody to be a real encouragement and and resource to somebody. Uh, and then also, yeah, find those people. That's one of the things I love about podcasting is I get to learn. So like I get to learn from you today and just like be encouraged that, that I don't have to put on all these things and look like everybody else. I just have to be the, you know, who, who I am and show up to to the call. Right. And do that thing. Um, I, and I love that about podcasting, get to learn from, from so many people. What's an episode or two of your show that really stand out to you? I think one was I interviewed a woman by the name of Shonda Whitworth, and we talked about a mother's worst nightmare. Her son was convicted of murder and is serving time in prison. And yet she has figured figured out how to hold on to hope in the Lord. And she has seen God work in her son's life in prison. 
and he's now ministering to other inmates. I can't even imagine. But I look at that and I think, wow, that's inspiring. She has allowed God to use the worst of her situations in such good. Now she ministers to other parents who have children in prison. Wow. What did you take away from that? God never wastes our pain ever. You know, it's easy to throw out Romans eight twenty eight that says for all things work together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But when you're in the fire, when you're sick and on bed rest, when you have a child who's in prison, it can be hard to hold on to that because you think what good can come out of this? But I think what both Shonda and I have learned is that if we will surrender our difficulties, our trials, our imperfections to the Lord, he will bring about good. And then it will comfort others with the comfort that he's given us. It's like the Bible comes to life if we will allow God to do what he does best within our lives. See, I love that. There's there's a couple of reactions that people have to the spiritual desert or to that time, right? To, to suffering. And one of them is they get angry, right? And they get like, ah, and we see that in Jonah is a great example. There's others, right. Of just being, being mad at God. Um, and I talk about Habakkuk way too much, but that's my favorite example. He's like, Hey, it goes to God. And then the other one is to like, just surrender and just say, okay, all right, fine. What are you doing? But there's still questions in the middle of the, of the suffering. And like, this is not, I don't like this, right? This is not good. Do you have any particular, if you had any experiences of the Lord with the Lord in those kind of moments of suffering? I know you, you have them often. Yeah, I had one. My husband's been diagnosed with cancer three times. And after his most recent diagnosis, someone had brought a meal over to the house. And I've always said, I don't think it does us a whole lot of good to ask why. Mm. Nobody ever ever feels better. Like after they've been raped, they don't feel better knowing why someone raped them (laughs) or why their child died or why my husband had to go through cancer three times. Why is just not very productive. I've found it more helpful though, to ask Lord, what do you want me to learn in this? Lord, what is your purpose in this time? And a friend came and brought a meal and she said, what if this cancer diagnosis is not about you, but it's about how you're responding and how people will see your faith exhibited in that. And that was a real eye opener because I'd never thought about that before. Yeah. And so now I'm thinking, Lord, what is it you want me to share through our heartache that's going to minister to somebody who's going through a hard time now? Yeah. Interesting. And you're still, so, so your husband is struggling with cancer still. Is that right? He's doing well right now. Good. And you're, but you're still having health issues as well. Like you're not like out of that. No, no, we're still fighting it and still trusting and believing for healing, but some days are harder than others. But that was actually part of what spurred my next book that's coming out in May that's called Today's Going to Be a Good Day. Because I've gone through these dark days where like, wow, it's a struggle, but really felt challenged by God despite our circumstances. Why is today still a good day? And it always comes back to the promises of God. God doesn't lie. So if he's made a promise, he's going to see it through and fulfill it. 
So if we will hang on to his promises, despite what our emotions tell us and despite our circumstances that we might not want, today's still going to be a good day. Yeah. I love that in terms of your overall message as well, because it's not that our emotions and our circumstances don't matter. It's that they're not the the only true thing. Right. And I, I think that's super powerful. So you, you do still struggle with pain. And so like, do you ever want God to just take the pain away? Like, do you ever wish that God would do that? Ah, yes. That's the easy answer. But I mean, there are plenty of days when I just think, Lord, I could be so much more effective in ministry for your kingdom if I didn't have this debilitating pain. But Lord, but Eric, it goes back to that discussion that we are having that yeah. if he took the pain away, those who are going through difficult times wouldn't be able to relate. But when I'm willing to be vulnerable and say, today's a hard day, but it's still a good day because God's still on his throne, I can encourage others who are going through painful times, whether it's physical or emotional or relational or spiritual. So yeah, sometimes I do wish that he would take the pain away. But what I've come to realize is that God never wastes our pain. And had I not gone through that five months of bed rest and severe depression, I wouldn't have written a book that helped other people find out how to get through that. So I've come to be more grateful for the circumstances God allows in my life. But there are still times that I think, oh, Lord, right? couldn't I do more if I didn't have this pain? I, well, but I, he's allowed it. So I want to know, what do you want me to learn through it? Yeah, well, so that's so interesting because in some way is, hey, I could do more. Is that like a return to like, oh, am I productive? That's, that's, that's like your... Right. You're sort of, hey, that's that's my default. I want to do all that. Uh, and God's like, that's not what I want from you. I want right. you to be faithful. I want you to share your story. I want you to encourage other people. And that's where he's he's clearly provided a lot of fruit for you. Wow. All right. I think that's fascinating. And I just, I, friends, I want you to hear that. It's I know we all struggle with things and your circumstances absolutely matter to God. But it's not that I would even say it's not that he's trying to teach you something, but he still uses them. He uses them good, right? So he uses them for you, for your good, and sometimes for the good of others around you. So step in and ask him. That's the key. I think what you said earlier, um, that you wake up and go, okay, God, what's what's today? What, What do you want from me? Just ask the question and just be open to the response you're going to be surprised at what sometimes he brings up. It's, it's kind of incredible. Um, all right, Michelle, I love it. Your website is, I've got it right here, Dr. Michelle Bankson, and that's spelled B E N G T S O N. Just go to the show notes guys, halfway there, podcast.com. You'll find it as well. And uh, you guys, you can search, search and find her. Michelle, is there anything you want to leave us with? I think the overall message, Eric, that I would leave is that, as long as God is still on his throne, hope prevails. Amen. Amen. And ultimately he prevails, right? And so we, we in, in time, all, all of these, the pain will be wiped away and the Lord we will live with him and be his people. That's the brilliance. Uh, and that's the hope. So, uh, Michelle, thanks for being here. I really do appreciate you sharing your story. Uh, it was worth the wait. It was my pleasure. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for being here.